Good morning. <laughs> Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Today's scripture passage comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Springs. Um, happy Daylight Savings, if this is just like a day you've been looking forward to all year. Uh, and if you have, you're dismissed. I'm just kidding. We love you. We love, we love early cold weather. I was today years old when I found out that this is only like an American thing. Uh, apparently, uh, National Treasure informs us that this doesn't happen all over the world. It's just in the U.S., so thank you, Justin, for that piece of knowledge. Uh, and happy spring break. If you're a teacher, if you got this week off or, or slowing down this week, I, I pray that it's a, a refreshing time of a, of a change of pace. So uh, really excited, exci- exciting things happening, and I'm excited to jump into the Word. And so we've been going through this sermon series that, that we kicked off a few weeks ago called Follow Me. And, and uh, the tagline if you see on the bumper video, is Lent and following Jesus to the empty tomb. Uh, and we're examining this idea of, of what does it look like to uh, follow Jesus and, and examine our lives and see where we falling out of step with Jesus. Uh, when we think about walking with Jesus, a thousand things come to mind, and maybe there's a thousand different opinions, and, and uh, rarely do we take a moment to examine, how am I walking with Jesus, and in my pursuit of faith, is, is Jesus with me? And, and am I with Jesus? And so we're taking a time to slow down and examine our walk with the Lord. And in doing so, we've been answering a few questions. As we work through this book of Matthew, we've been answering the question, what kind of king are we following? And when we see Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy and experience every single temptation known to man, though this is an awesome showdown between the devil and King Jesus, the focus here is to reveal to us what kind of king Jesus is. And the king that we see Jesus uh, be is a king that suffers, um, and he is the promised king. He's the suffering servant. Uh, And this is really important because when we enter into a relationship with God, we're immediately entering into a relationship with a person who has experienced the quality of life that you and I walk in. Uh, one that is known by affliction and suffering, and uh, he has experienced that, and we can uh, find refuge in him because he has overcome. Uh, and then we kind of examine this idea, uh, what is he inviting us to? And we took this sort of long Old Testament journey into this passage to understand that he's inviting us to, to, to rule and reign with him, to, to advance his kingdom, to allow his rule and reign over every single area of our life and experience freedom that doesn't come from living autonomous lives, but submitting to his lordship. 
Uh, and today we're going to kind of look at, at what does this repentance look like when he offers this invitation of grace to repent? And what is the fruit of repentance in the life of a follower of Jesus? And to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 17 through 22. And we're going to look at uh, some of these verses. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse and spend a little bit of time in each one. So Will you look with me at verse 17, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, So last week, we we spent some time uh, unpacking this idea that, that repentance is actually a good thing. And uh, if you were with us last week, thank you for journeying with me for an hour. I promise you that's a once a month thing. Maybe once a quarter, okay? Uh, and I, I got a text from a, a friend. He said, did you preach two messages this past Sunday? And I was like, man, come on, low blow. Listen, it's a once every now and then type of thing. This could be that Sunday, who knows? Uh, and so we spent some time unpacking this idea of repentance, and we spent time there because when we think about repentance, what often comes to mind is sort of these negative associations. We envision maybe a street preacher saying, turn or burn, repent, or go to hell. And we envision all sort of these negative experiences. But when the scriptures talk about repentance, it actually gives sort of this different vision for this experience. It's, it's an invitation to experience God. God's grace. It's an invitation to experience his mercy, his kindness, his love, to experience God's presence. How? Because when we turn away from whatever is preoccupying us, good or bad, and we turn to God, he is there to receive us. He is there to meet us with his grace, with his kindness, with his mercy, with his love. And so as we turn away from whatever preoccupies us, and notice that Jesus doesn't say, repent from this or repent from that, because Repentance is turning away from good things and bad things. Uh, Turning away from whatever uh, uh, grabs our attention and robs us from God and an invitation to experience his mercy, his grace, and his love. Mark actually retells this moment uh, uh, that that we just read about in Matthew. And this is the way he says it in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. He says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, so Mark goes to extra lengths to remind his audience that the message of Jesus is good news. He doesn't say just repent. Don't just turn to God. Believe in this good news. Uh, that when we turn to God, it's a good thing. And so why is Mark going extra lengths to, to remind his audience that this is good news? Well, the reason why is because according to history, the early Christians, the Christians that were in Rome, were well acquainted with bad news. Uh, And and this book of Mark was written to a group of Christians uh, who have been treated as outcasts because of their commitment to Christ. Uh, They would have been pushed to the margins of society and experienced such deep pain and persecution that was brought on because of their faith in Jesus. Uh, It's a group of people who would have been set apart from society, pushed away violently because their commitment to Jesus Christ brought upon them all sorts of suffering. And this group of Christians that we see in Rome would have been so discouraged that they would have asked themselves the same question that you and I ask ourselves when we experience deep disappointment and our expectations for following Jesus isn't really matching the reality that we live in. They would have asked something like, is it really worth it? Is it worth all this time? Is it worth all this energy? Is it worth all this effort to try to walk with Jesus? 
And this group was all too familiar with bad news that Mark goes extra lengths to encourage them and say, no, there is good news. And this good news is the person of Jesus, that he offers a hope and a peace and a love that isn't dictated upon the suffering and persecution that you're experiencing, but actually transcends that. And you can find strength and courage and faith to carry on. Matthew, however, takes a completely different route to encourage the people that he's writing to because they're experiencing a different type of hopelessness. Uh, They're not in Rome. This would have been a Jewish audience. uh, And they were familiar with a different type of pain and a different type of suffering. And he references to a Old Testament scripture that the people living in Galilee uh, would have been all too familiar with. He says this from Isaiah 9, 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so uh, there is a king, and he's bringing his kingdom. And his kingdom, Matthew says, will actually push back the deep darkness. Uh, That his kingdom will actually overthrow the enemies that bring upon suffering and death. That his kingdom and this king will overthrow all sources of hopelessness and establish a kingdom of peace and joy. There were high hopes for a king that would bring good news. And one of the things that, 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 that we know is that kingdom was this household term in this sort of first century context. Uh, Jewish men and Jewish women, boys and girls, anxiously awaited the arrival of God's kingdom. And this word meant many different things for many different people. Uh, So much so that the word kingdom had actually become a political term and was loaded with political connotations. And like most political terms, they're often loaded with expectations. When someone says Republican, an image comes to mind, and for some people, certain uh, expectations must be met to identify with this political group. And certain things are expected to happen and be upheld in law and government. When someone says Democrat, a certain image comes to mind, and for some people, uh, certain things are expected to happen and must be upheld in law and government. There are certain expectations that come to mind. When we think about political terms, and the list goes on. So when Jesus says that the kingdom has come near, this idea of nearness evoked all sorts of expectations. For some, the kingdom coming near meant that the Roman Empire would be finally overthrown, and one of their own would be the king. For others, it meant that God would be pouring out his wrath on the wicked, and at the same time pouring out his blessing on the righteous. For some, it meant the end of suffering, and for others, it marked the beginning of prosperity. Now, why were there so many expectations for what God's kingdom should look like and what it should do and accomplish? Uh, Old Testament professor and theologian Donald Goen gives us some insight into this. He says, God must transform the human person, give a new heart and a new spirit. God must transform human society, restore Israel to the promised land, rebuild cities, and make Israel's new status a witness to the nations. And God must transform nature itself. Uh, This right here is a good summary of everything that was lost to sin. And all that God promises to restore as we see in the scripture. And when we look at the world, uh, we all see a world that is in desperate need of transformation. 
And when the Israelites compared the brokenness of the world that they're living in to the promise of transformation found in the scriptures, expectations would begin to take root in their heart. Author Michael Wilkins points out that these hopes for transformation caused certain groups to form that expected specific things from the king and his kingdom. Some groups in Israel wanted a transformed nature. They wanted the land to, to, to prosper and to yield a good harvest. Uh, other groups focused on Israel's restoration. Uh, let's make Israel a powerful force and strong nation again. And some focused on new hearts. How do we deal with this mechanism of sin that's in our hearts? And others just focused on cities and their local regions. And he goes on to say, When people hear Jesus announce that the kingdom of heaven is near, they expect Jesus to inaugurate the kind of kingdom consistent with their hopes. When people hear Jesus announce that the kingdom of heaven is near, they expect Jesus to inaugurate the kind of kingdom that is consistent with their hopes. And isn't that so true for you and I? What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? What are the thoughts that come into your mind when you think about who King Jesus is? Uh, That guy is just a, a good teacher. Calling him king is kind of a stretch. Jesus... Uh, My grandma loves God, but maybe God is more of a safety net for me. Jesus, uh, faith has let me down. I'm, I'm moving on from that. For some, the thought of Jesus evokes a sense of worship as you consider the beautiful king of the universe and who he is and what he's done for you. And yet for others, when Jesus comes to mind, you respond in a very neutral tone. Yeah, I follow him. I go to church and stuff. I do all the religious stuff. But if I'm honest and feels more like a duty than a delight. And the reason why this matters is because what comes to mind when you think about Jesus will determine how you respond to him. What comes to your mind when you think about the person of Christ will determine how you respond to him and pursue obedience to his word. When Jesus invites us to repent and come to him, It's this invitation to experience grace, as we discussed last week, but it's also this invitation to reorganize and readjust our expectations against his lordship. We look at verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw the two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, the Sea of Galilee, if we can just nerd out on on very brief history, is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, And Jerusalem is said to be the center of religious life. Uh, Marcus Tullius Cicero, a Roman politician and lawyer and scholar, philosopher, is considered one of Rome's greatest communicators and writer. In his writings, uh, described occupations such as tax collectors, laborers, and fishermen as vulgar, And that professions such as teacher, doctor, and trader were more honorable. Now, this is the Roman elitism of of that day and age, and it still lingers today, where it seems like some jobs are more esteemed than others. But when Jesus arrives and, and he takes on this role as a carpenter and begins to call ordinary men and women, what he what we see him begin to do is bring dignity and value to all work. 
Why? Because in the kingdom of God, work now becomes a place of worship instead of an idol that we look to for significance. And in the call to follow Jesus, he begins to reorganize and and adjust our expectations for what it means not only to follow him, but to function in this world in our day-to-day lives. And I believe one of the things that he's readjusting as we follow him is how we think about our work, how we think about our occupations. Because in the kingdom of God, work becomes the place where we reclaim the command in the garden to cultivate a world that glorifies God. Our work actually becomes a temple where we bring worship to God by working in such a way that it glorifies him. And it also becomes our mission field because it's the place where God's kingdom is advanced and we bring a light that pushes back the darkness. Our work is also the place where God begins to chisel at our hearts and cultivate character and godliness and make us more like Jesus. But living in such a way where we view work as the place of our worship and not the place where we find significance and value requires us surrendering our expectations for what work means to us as we follow King Jesus. I've seen dozens of people say stuff like, man, I want to go into ministry because ministry is going to be so fulfilling. And wow, it's going to be awesome full-time worshiping God and and serving people and living on mission. It's going to be the best job ever, only to come up completely disappointed. Because now this place that was once thought to be the source of value and significance has now become a burden that God maybe never put on you to carry. Seen other people uh, uh, cycle in and out of comparison. Oh, I I wish I was doing that instead. Man, uh, what I'm doing right now is not as cool as this job or that job. And if I had that occupation or that career, my life would be so much better and I'd be way more fulfilled. And what ends up happening when we participate in comparison is that it robs us of the joy that God wants to bring in our lives right now where he has us. And comparison will turn a place of worship where you can glorify God into a place of shame. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus brings dignity and value to all work. From staying at home with children to being the politically elite and everything in between. Work is now the place of worship and not an idol that we bow down to or pursue for value and significance and status and show off to the world. Look at what this career and look at what this job is doing for me. Look at how much money I have and how satisfied I am. No, work becomes the place where we advance God's kingdom and we Uh, cultivate and build a better world through our worship of him in that place. You see, discipleship is about becoming more like Jesus. And to do that, we need to be with Jesus. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that we can be with Jesus anywhere. In the classroom, in the garage, in the nursery, in the office. In the car, as we're grocery shopping, we can be with Jesus anywhere and everywhere. And everywhere we step can become holy ground where we begin to cultivate and build God's kingdom, push back the forces of darkness and worship him right where he has us. In other words, every single follower of Jesus is in full-time ministry. 
If you are a follower of Jesus and you are sitting in this room, you, my friend, are in full-time ministry. Uh, Pete Cazero has this amazing illustration. He says that, that, that when anybody says, hey, I'm a teacher, but I'm not in full-time ministry, I want that to sound as ridiculous as someone saying the moon is made out of cheese. When someone says, uh, hey, uh, I, uh, I, I work at a bank or I'm a mechanic, uh, I, 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 but I'm not in full-time ministry, I want that to sound as ridiculous as uh, the earth is flat. Uh, when someone says uh, that I, um, uh, you know, do Uber or I'm a stay-at-home mom and I'm not in full-time ministry, I want that to sound as ridiculous as someone saying, hey, I'm an alien from Mars, because it is ridiculous. It's the antithesis of what the truth of the scripture says, that when you become a follower of Jesus, you are immediately commissioned as a full-time minister of his good news. And the place where God has placed you, your work, your occupation, now becomes the place where you advance God's kingdom and represent him to everyone around you. And you don't need to uh, enlist in a full-time vocational ministry to do that. And if God has called you, praise be to God to do that. But every single person, every single follower of Jesus is in full-time ministry. Because wherever God has called us to labor with our hands, that is the place where we build God's kingdom. That is the place where he begins to cultivate character and godliness. You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call to full-time ministry. And when we look at verse 9, he says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and, and, and followed him. Uh, Jesus calls and immediately uh, they leave their nets. In the middle of a work day, uh, they abandon everything. Now, earlier we said that uh, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in this moment, we get a vivid picture of what repentance looks like. It's this radical reorganization of one's life around the person of Christ. And we get to verse 21, and the same thing begins to happen. And going on from there, uh, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. What we see happening here is what some scholars call a description. It's not a prescription. It's not necessarily the regular order of things in the way God does things when he calls people. Like he's not going to show up to your job. He can, but rarely does he show up to your job and say, hey, quit coding. You're with me now. Uh, that can happen, that has happened, but the focus of this story is not necessarily on how it goes down, but who it's happening with and how Jesus begins to call. And we're going to unpack that in a moment. So in this scene, we see a few things going on. Jesus has the authority of a king. When a king calls, you obey. And Jesus uh, has uh, the authority to call a person into a relationship with him. And what makes King Jesus better than any other king is that he has the authority to sustain a relationship with him. That he who began a good work is, is faithful uh, to bring it to completion. But also what we see here is that this is not their first encounter with Jesus. Now, turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. Verse 35 says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
This is talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus, the one that was announcing, hey, there's going to be a, a, a prophet, priest, and king greater than I who will inaugurate, bring in the kingdom of God. And he's standing with two of his disciples. Remember that, two disciples. We're going to come back to that. And he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by, said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to him, to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two, remember John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called uh, Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew was one of the two disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, that's the king, that's the Messiah. Andrew and this other unnamed disciple who uh, scholars speculate was the apostle John, uh, leave John the Baptist and say, well, we're going to follow him because he's the chosen one. And so Andrew brings his brother Peter. He says, hey, hey, come with me. I I found the Messiah. In other words, I have found the king, the anointed one. And now Peter has this interaction with Jesus. And look at verse 42 again. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, a.k.a. Rock. D.A. Carson points out that when Peter is brought to Jesus, Jesus assigns a new name as a declaration of what Peter will become. The rock upon which the church is built. The great apostle Peter that we see preaching to thousands in the book of Acts. Uh, This is not so much a merely predictive utterance as a declaration of what Jesus will make him. Carson goes on to say, uh, here in John 1, however, the focus is much less on what this name change means for Peter than on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly. And not only does he see into them, but he calls them and makes them what he's called them to be. You see, what we know about Jesus' ministry is that it lasted three years. Some have labeled it this way. The first year was a year of obscurity. The second year was a year of popularity. And the third year was a year of increasing rejection. Now, the reason I point this out is because when we read the scriptures, we sometimes process these stories in a very linear, sequential format. You know, A, B, C, one, two, three, this happened and this happened. And in some cases, that's true. Uh, but what the, but in other cases, things are kind of scattered around. Why? Because the author is more set on telling us what Jesus did than necessarily the order he did it in. And so when we look at history and we fill in this uh, timeline, we see that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He heads into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been arrested and he spends a year of obscurity in Galilee. And within that year, there are a few miracles that kind of pop up. Jesus is at a wedding, and a few of his followers would be there. And he turns water into wine, grabbing people's attention. 
He has an interaction with a woman at the well and tells her her whole life story and redeems her and, and has this awesome theological conversation and she's just transformed and renewed and becomes a, an evangelist to the town. And there's these little moments of, of Jesus sort of revealing his divinity and miracle signs and wonders and a few people are catching a glimpse of it and, and, and having experiences with him. New Testament scholar Michael J. Wilkins says that, that when we get to this moment where Jesus calls his disciples and say, leave behind your nets and come follow me, he says this was no emotional spur of the moment decision. They must have been waiting for this momentous occasion to join Jesus as he embarks on his kingdom mission. So they respond at once when he calls. Now, why does this matter? Why did we just unpack this? Because earlier we said that what comes to mind when you think about Jesus will determine how you respond to him. And consider what came to their mind when they think about Jesus and when they see Jesus arrive at their boat and Jesus says, it is time. The Jesus that they've interacted with. The Jesus that they've seen turn water into wine. The Jesus that John the Baptist said, this is the guy they've been watching and anxiously waiting for him to initiate his ministry. And when he calls them and says, come follow me, it is a no-brainer. They drop everything and become his disciples. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus will determine how you respond to him. And commitment to Jesus, obedience to Jesus, will always grow out of relationship to Jesus and experience with him. And as we begin to grow with Jesus, and as we begin to experience him more and more and more, our increased growth in relationship requires a corresponding adjustment in our commitment to him. What comes to mind when we think about Jesus? is influenced by our experience with him. And our response to him always grows out of relationship to him. And it's really easy to read a story like this and think, oh man, these guys were just so filled with faith and, and, and uh, they were the exception. Uh, I would never be able to do something like that. But yet what we see from the scripture is that they had interaction with Jesus. They observed Jesus. They had an experience with him. They had an encounter with him, uh, uh, an increasing relationship with him, so much so that it would influence their decision when Jesus would call them to obedience. Church, are we growing in that sort of experience with Jesus? Are we growing in that sort of uh, intimate relationship with him, building history with him, so much so that we know that he's a trustworthy God and that serving him and being obedient to him is far better than uh, anything this world has to offer and that come what may or whatever he asks for us, it is this delight to respond in obedience and we metaphorically leave everything behind to glorify him and pursue joyful obedience. That grows out of relationship with him. That grows out of experience with him. That grows out of interacting with the King of kings and the Lord of lords and seeing that he is truly good and better than anything this world has to offer. When Jesus says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's inviting us to experience his grace. He is inviting us to interact with him, to encounter him and realign our expectations for what it means to be his follower. 
Why does this matter and what does this have to do with you and me? You see, when we think about following Jesus and we consider this kind of story, it's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of these fishermen because most of our stories aren't like this one. And we look at these characters and we consider their great sacrifice to leave everything behind, to momentarily leave behind family, to momentarily leave behind their career. And we see and we hear messages preached like, like be like Peter and, and be like Andrew and be like John, leave, leave everything behind. And, and those aren't bad messages. We should leave behind everything that would get in the way of us following Jesus. But oftentimes we leave Jesus behind in doing so. You see, we get so caught up in what we're doing or what we're not doing that we end up focusing on ourselves or worse, we compare ourselves to others and how they're following Jesus. And then Jesus begins to fade into the background. And when this happens, we will compare the quality of our sacrifice to Jesus against others. And this comparison is an open door for the enemy to come in and whisper lies. Man, you call that following Jesus? You should see what Becky's doing. Waking up at 4 a.m. every morning, casting out devils, worshiping. You know Becky. Really, Jim, is that, is that the best you got? Uh, wait, wait till you see how Joe is giving everything he has. Uh, and instead of being partners with the people that God has called us to be in relationship with, they become the standard that we measure ourselves against. And then we experience all sorts of self-inflicted shame and discouragement as we audit our lives. And it's not measuring up to what others are doing. Instead of realigning our expectations against the lordship of Jesus. And letting him grow us and be the standard for what he's called us to do. You see, this story is less about their individual response and more about who is, who is calling and who he is calling. Uh, who is calling? It's Jesus. And who is he calling? People like you and me. And their response is only possible because the one who calls is also the one who empowers to follow. Consider this. Where does Jesus start? And and who does he go after? Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee and he goes after locals in Galilee. Uh, And anyone familiar with Israel's history would have expected the Messiah to focus his ministry in the religious capital. That seems like the most strategic thing to do. Go after the religious elite in Jerusalem. Spend all your time there reforming and reordering the structures and the powers and principalities. Uh, That's where all the power and prestige and prophetic hope should come from. Galilee is the exact opposite of Jerusalem. Where Jerusalem was home to the religious elite, Galilee is home to pagan fishermen far from God. Where Jerusalem was the seat for the politically powerful, Galilee was powerfully oppressed. Jerusalem was thought to be the birthplace of kings, the city of God. Galilee was considered a region of peasants. And there was one town in particular considered beneath them all in this region, the town of Nazareth, the birthplace of King Jesus. 
Jesus, the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, born in the lowest town in all the region with the absolute worst reputation in the nation. So much so that when Philip, a disciple of Jesus, goes and tells his friend Nathaniel that the king is here uh, and that his name is Jesus. And oh, yeah, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel is so shocked and in disbelief. And he says, are you sure? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of this region and this town that is historically known to be dominated by pagan worshipers and people far from God? Can anything good come from this region that is known as the region and shadow of death? Are you sure? Can anything good come out of San Marcos? Can anything good come out of Hayes County? Can anything good come out of this region? And listen, friends, it's really easy to say yes to those things because they feel impersonal and really broad, and it's not hard to believe things for other people. Yeah, anything good can come out of San Marcos. Look at so-and-so. And yeah, plenty of good can come out of here. But when we examine the lowest parts of our lives and ask ourselves the same question, it's harder to believe that something good can come out of us. Can anything good come out of my broken past that's fracturing my current relationship? Can anything good come out of my crippling trauma that is crippling uh, my day-to-day function as an adult? Can anything good come out of all the relationships I've burned because of my anger and bitterness? Can anything good come out of the years that feel wasted as a parent? Because if I knew, if I knew now what I, if I knew now what I knew then, everything would have been so different. Can anything good come out of that miscarriage? Can anything good come out of that loss of a loved one? Can anything good come out of this terminal illness? Can anything good come out of this failure after failure and disappointment after disappointment? Can anything good come out of the most broken and afflicted low parts of my life? If you feel this way, if you've thought this, here is the good news of the kingdom of God. The universal message of hope springs forth from the place of greatest hopelessness. The universal message of life springs forth from the region of death. The author of life is born in the region of, in the shadow of death. What good can come out of Nazareth? What good can come out of a place that is held in such low esteem, marked by death and brokenness and chaos? The king of the universe. The king of the universe who can take our shattered expectations and broken lives and bring healing and wholeness to all that is lost by sin. And how is this possible? Because the king that was born in the most lowest region of the day and age, marked by brokenness, despair, and death, is exalted on the cross. And on that cross, this king is treated as one 
who has never sinned yet condemned as a sinner. The one who has never been corrupted by the curse of sin, which is death, dies on the cross. And the New Testament church leader, the Apostle Paul, gives us insight into what this death on the, on the cross accomplished and says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, God the Father put our sin upon the holy, blameless, perfect Son, and now the Son experiences death, experiences suffering, experiences the penalty for our sin, and something miraculous takes place. As our sin is transferred to the Son, the Son transfers to us His righteousness. As our brokenness is transferred to the Son, He transfers to us His wholeness. As our hopelessness is transferred to the Son, He transfers to us His hope. As all the things that would rob us of joy and life and bring about death are transferred to the Son, we receive His life and His Spirit, resurrection power. The Son transfers to us his righteousness, his life, his resurrection power to overcome sin, to experience new life, to walk in the reality that hope is not dictated on our current circumstances or our past mistakes, but is built upon a risen king who has conquered death and is making all things new. What good can come out of Galilee? A loving king who loves us enough to suffer with us and reach down into the lowest parts of our world and love us enough to rescue us from the oppressive power of sin. Why? So that we can be raised in glory and experience a new life with him. What good can come out of Galilee? A present savior who promises to meet us in all these places that afflict us and bring us low and brings a light that shines into the darkness that may not immediately fix everything, but gives us this hope and assurance that what I'm going through now will not be what I experience forever. And that in the kingdom of God, uh, death is, uh, is not the final answer. In the kingdom of God, where there is death, there can be hope. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The place where Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, will be the place where Jesus reunites his disciples and gives them the great commission. And we see this in Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee after seeing Jesus die on the cross and all of their hope for the future is completely shattered and their dreams of life with the Messiah are down the drain because how can the king die? And it seems like all hope is lost and that this mission is over Jesus raises from the dead, meets his disciples and instructs them, hey, meet me back in Galilee, the region where I first called you. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The risen king offers the same invitation today. Follow me. An invitation to experience life with Jesus and allow him to rule and reign over every single area of your life. To leave behind anything that would get in the way of radical obedience to Jesus and reorganize your life around him. An invitation and also a commission to go and display the goodness of God uh, in every area of life. And he says he'll be with you always. And notice the way that both of these scenes uh, begin and end. They both start with Jesus and they both end with Jesus. Matthew 4, Jesus saw two brothers and he told them, follow me. Jesus saw and he invites to follow. It starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. Matthew 28, Jesus comes to them in the middle of their disappointment and despair and hopelessness in all of his glory. And he commissions them to go and make disciples to push back the kingdom of darkness, uh, to advance his kingdom and display his goodness and glory. And he says that he will be with them always. Jesus appears to them and gives them the promise that he's with them always. You see, in our discipleship to Jesus, our relationship with him begins with Jesus taking the initiative to invite you into relationship, to show up in your life, maybe the lowest part of your life. And in that place, he meets you and he says, follow me. Notice that he doesn't wait for his disciples to exit Galilee, become great men, establish themselves as politically and scripturally powerful in Jerusalem. No, he meets them where they are. Fishermen, maybe not too well versed in the Torah, dismissed by others, but called by God. And he empowers them and commissions them to change the world. Our relationship with Jesus begins with him taking the initiative and him sustaining us and him carrying us into eternal glory. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? May it be the God who met you where you are, is currently sustaining you, and promises to carry you into future glory. What does he call you? And when he calls you to leave everything behind, when he calls you to turn away from sin, may what come to your mind be the reminder that he will sustain you with his grace. When he asks you to let this idol go or to transition to this career or to forgive that person or to let this habit die, may you remember that the Jesus who calls is also the Jesus who sustains. And the sin that he calls you to turn from, the life that he calls you to live, he will empower you with his presence and carry you into glory to taste victory. The life you live with Jesus, hear me church, will be welcomed by doubt will be filled with affliction, will have its fair share of suffering. 
And the promise of Scripture that we see is that he will be with you always and he will carry you into glory. What comes to mind when you think about following Jesus? May it be the King of Kings, born in the lowest region, exalted far above uh, angels and principalities and powers, seated at the right hand of God, who has called you by name, is forming you, sustaining you, keeping you, and carrying you into glory as he transformed you from one degree of glory to another. Praise be to God for this wonderful King. Let's praise God as we close in prayer.